My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Paul Beckwith. There have always been exceptions, but by and large it is not seen as part of their job description for scientists to put energy into engaging the broader public when it comes to their own research or to scientific ideas more generally. Indeed, in recent years, the Conservative federal government in Canada has gone out of its way to make sure that no scientist on the federal payroll shares their expertise with the public without it being passed through right-wing ideological filters first. But one crucial pillar of one of the defining issues of our era, global climate change, is intimately bound up with how policymakers and, perhaps more importantly, ordinary people relate to scientific research, analysis, and ideas. Faced with ideological restrictions like those from the Canadian government, and with a profoundly anti-scientific campaign of climate change denial dressed up as responsible skepticism that is funded with massive resources from the fossil fuel industries, growing numbers of climate scientists at least those whose jobs aren't at risk by doing so, are pushing the boundaries of professional expectations and engaging directly with the public on this incredibly important issue. Paul Beckwith has a background in physics and engineering, but with a growing sense of the importance of climate change, he switched fields and went back to school. He is currently doing a PhD related to climate change at the University of Ottawa, where he is studying a hypothesis that argues that things are in fact much worse than the dominant scientific consensus on the issue currently recognizes. Along with the usual original research and teaching that someone in his position is expected to do, Beckwith has committed himself to engaging with the public on questions related to climate change through social media, writing for popular outlets, participating in relevant groups, producing his own YouTube videos, and much more, all of which he hopes will contribute to efforts to build the kind of popular consciousness we need if we're going to mount a social challenge that might be adequate to confront climate change. I spoke with Beckwith by Skype from Ottawa. I'm Paul Beckwith. I'm at the University of Ottawa in the Laboratory for Paleoclimatology, which is in the Department of Geography. I'm working towards my PhD. My research topic is abrupt climate change. So I'm looking at how quickly the uh, climate system changed in the past in the paleo records. And I'm looking at what's happening today at contemporary climate change. We seem to be undergoing a, a massive shift in climate and also in um, the statistics of weather. There seems to be a lot more extreme weather events, so I'm studying those areas. I'm an engineer. I did an engineering physics degree. I specialized in uh, laser physics, so I did a Master of Science degree in uh, laser optics, laser physics, then did quite a bit of research in laser uh, physics, laser optics, and in other technology areas. I've always been concerned with climate change and read on the topic a lot for many, many years and then decided about three and a half years or so to go back to school to study abrupt climate change. I also teach the second year climatology meteorology course at the University of Ottawa, um, about 100 students in the course. I've done that for a few years and I think I'll be doing that again uh, in, in the following September. 
So my research is looking at the climate system overall. What elements are there in the system? How do the elements interact? The strengths of the linkages between different elements and also how they're changing. You know, we're seeing very, very large changes in today's climate, leading to large changes in weather, in droughts and floods and wind events. In the past, there have been periods of time in the ice core records, in the tree ring records, in the marine sediment records, when the global average temperatures increased, you know, anywhere from five, six, seven degrees or higher Celsius in the space of one decade or two decades. So we have that information in the record. The climate system is capable of changing very quickly. Humans have developed civilizations and so on, agriculture, you know, industry, everything that we've done has happened in a climate that's been much more stable or stationary than what we're starting to see now. My focus is on what is happening now. So obviously greenhouse gases are going way up from fossil fuel burning. So at the start of the Industrial Revolution, the levels in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide was about 280 parts per million, and we've surpassed 400 parts per million now. So because these gases have gone up and they trapped the heat, we've been warming. So we've warmed about 0.8, 0.85 degrees is the global average temperature increase since the Industrial Revolution. But you don't get that temperature rise uniformly across the planet. The greenhouse gas blanket has warmed the Arctic sufficiently that now there's been tremendous loss of Arctic sea ice and snow cover over the land. And what happens is because of the snow and ice decline, the Arctic is darkening because underneath the ice is dark seawater. Underneath the white snow is permafrost and land, which captures more light. It doesn't reflect as much light. So the Arctic is warming. The high Arctic is warming at anywhere from five to eight times faster than the rest of the planet. So that's decreasing the temperature difference between the equator and the Arctic because the equator doesn't change that much in temperature. So that change in temperature distribution in the northern hemisphere leads rise to the jet streams, which are high altitude winds circling the planet. So these jet streams are moving slower and they're much wavier because of that temperature difference change. And because they're much wavier, moving much slower, and also we're overall warmer, so there's more water vapor in the atmosphere, there's more evaporation. So the climate background has changed, and therefore the weather events that happen in that climate are different. So there's more extreme weather events, they're more intense, they last for longer, and they're in different regions of the planet that we're not used to. So the big effect on people is this affects agriculture, crop production, food supply. This will affect affects many, many people, obviously most people on the planet. And uh, it's not something that's going to go away. You know, it's not just a phase that we're going through that will correct back to where we were before. This is an ongoing issue, and the extreme weather events are going to get more and more severe as the Arctic gets warmer and warmer and darker. So my working hypothesis for my research is that the Earth is presently undergoing what would be called an abrupt climate change. You can have a forcing event, and then you can have the system respond. If you have a small forcing event, then you generally have a small response. And that's the, the linear regime. In the case of an abrupt change, then the response of the system is much, much larger. 
is disproportionate to the forcing. So you can cross a threshold or a tipping point and you can have a very large change in the system. The first tipping point is the Arctic albedo or reflectivity decline, which is the exponential sea ice decline, sea ice volume decline, and the exponential snow cover decline. Because as there's less and less light reflected in the Arctic from these white surfaces, there's more and more absorption. So the pole is heating very, very fast. And as it's heating, then there's more and more ice and snow melt. So then it will heat even more. So it's a very strong reinforcing feedback um, called the positive feedback. It's not positive for people. It's a reinforcing feedback. So that's one aspect of my research, to look at the behavior of the Arctic over time and look at all of the data and the plots and the graphs and look at the statistics of how it's changing to try to uh, make a projection as to what's going to be happening, say, in the next few years and the next few decades. A very important factor is that as the Arctic is warming, as the ocean is warming up there, then uh, it is warming up the seafloor and it's also warming up the permafrost and tundra on the land. And when those areas warm up, there's lots of carbon stored there. And when that carbon warms up and is exposed to air, then the bacteria decompose the carbon material and, they, and methane gas is produced, CH4 is produced. If there's lack of oxygen and if, if it's nearer the surface, then you get carbon dioxide produced. So the warming in the Arctic is increasing the CO2 and methane. And methane is of a primary concern because on a short time period, one methane molecule effectively will heat the atmosphere at rates of 150 or 200 times greater than one molecule of CO2. The Russian observations, measurements off the eastern Siberian Arctic shelf show that lots of methane is coming up from the seafloor there and getting into the atmosphere. So this is another area that I will be looking at, that I am looking at, the distributions of methane in the Arctic, relating it to local warming in the Arctic. How does the hypothesis that you're studying, the abrupt climate change hypothesis, how does that relate to the scientific consensus as presented in like the IPCC reports and that kind of thing? So the IPCC reports that have come out recently, so We've had all three of them come out now. Those are the scientific consensus view, but some of the key elements that I have objection to in this report is the, the importance of the Arctic amplification, that five to eight times increase in temperature compared to the global average in the high Arctic. There hasn't been enough significance put on that element because that's probably the single most important element that will affect us. The Arctic temperature changes change the distribution of heat and temperature in the hemisphere, which then changes the wind patterns, the jet stream patterns, the wind patterns, the storm patterns. That's a huge issue of great importance, and it's in the reports, but I don't think it has enough emphasis as to how it affects the meteorology. And another thing is the report downplays the levels of methane that are coming up. This is an area, an active area of research. The Russians have sent teams onto the eastern Siberian Arctic shelf and measured large increases in methane in the last five, ten years. And, you know, the IPCC, the models are going on the assumption that methane will not significantly warm the climate over this century. 
I think the observations are showing that that assumption cannot be made. I mean, we, we need to find out. I've been concerned about the methane issue and joined a group called the Arctic Methane Emergency Group. It includes a number of scientists, filmmakers, medical doctors, economists. It started in the UK about two and a half years ago, and we actively look at the methane situation and try to, you know, educate people and governments and politicians, saying this is this is a, an issue that we need to look at very carefully because if the methane levels shoot up, then it will change the whole planet system very quickly. So I understand that you've decided to do something that. Most scientists don't do, and you've decided that it's an important component to your activity to popularize some of these ideas and to engage with a broader public around some of the ideas from your own research and some larger scientific ideas. Tell me a little bit about what led you to make that decision. When I did laser physics research, I had been concerned about climate change, and I could just see the ramping up of climate change. You know, over over time, like short periods of time, a year, two years, or so on, things just seem to be uh, spiraling up in terms of extreme weather events and so on. So I went back to school to study it formally. The main reason being that the way our world is set up, if you don't have a PhD in climate change, then many people just don't listen to you, at least in the science community. I'm doing my PhD just because the system requires a PhD in order to have more recognition by media, recognition by the public that you know what you're talking about. I'm bringing my engineering degree, engineering background to looking at the system, the whole system overall. I'm bringing the physics background to understand the, the, you know, there's lots of physics in the meteorology and, and also most climatologists are not physicists and they're not engineers. It's all science and it's the way universities are set up. There's a huge silo effect. I was absolutely amazed getting to the university, seeing that the permafrost people knew very little about the sea ice and what it was doing and the glaciologist people knew very little about what the permafrost was doing in terms of methane. And the meteorology people were seeing, you know, extreme weather events ramping up and had no connection of that to sea ice decline or methane increase. And the policy people didn't talk to any of these groups. The university is set up and the PhD is set up and research is set up to focus on a specific narrow area and learn everything you can about the state of the science in that area, and then incrementally advance it and write your paper and present. And this type of system will not solve the climate change issue. It will not educate the public on the overall system issues. So I'm coming at it from a very different point of view. In order to solve this issue, in order to make headway against climate change, we need a very multidisciplinary approach. The degree, writing papers, you know, this is all secondary. I'm very concerned about our near-term future, about our ability to grow food, about global conflicts, uh, water shortages, resource shortages. As I said, um, I think we're undergoing an abrupt change, and we're just not prepared for it. So, you know, it seemed to me that there needed to be more people looking at the whole system as opposed to just the different elements of the system. 
Tell me about the ways that you've found to do some of this work of engaging with a broader public. What approaches are there? What avenues are there to do that? What I decided was that as I researched different areas and got more knowledge about it, the traditional path that somebody studying science would take would be do the study, do the analysis, submit it to a peer-reviewed journal, you know, and then it maybe it's published a year later after revisions and so on. So the knowledge that you gain does not go out to the public for a long time. There's a long lag between when you determine what's things and when it goes out into the literature. So I decided as soon as I discovered or came across different interactions of the system that I would get it out to the public. So Facebook is the primary social media tool that I use to get information out to the public. I do post frequently on you know any 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 articles that I deem important on climate change I, I post. And then I became involved more in Twitter, you know, found out the power of Twitter, the advantages of Twitter, you know, the areas in which Twitter is better than Facebook or vice versa, and then connected the two. I went through a period where I was doing a lot of PowerPoint presentations, both to scientific groups and to the public, like NGOs and, uh, you know, environmental groups and so on. And then the Sierra Club of Canada approached me and asked me to do blogs for them every couple of weeks or months. So I started doing that. And then uh, other people with blogs asked me if they could just mirror the blog. So if I do a blog, you know, it ends up going on about four or five different blog sites pretty consistently. And then I got a better uh, cell phone and a tripod and I started doing YouTube clips. This rapper approached me. His raps are basically environmental issues. And he approached me and said, do you want to give me some content? So I, I haven't done that yet, but I'm working on giving him content, you know, keywords that he can then put into a rap. Um, some artists, I know some artists and they do some paintings and stuff with more environmental issues. You know, a woman in California who writes for the, the San Francisco Examiner contacted me and started doing articles about some of my blogs. And she's doing an art show on climate change. And I'll be doing a webinar for them, talking to the public. So th th that's been sort of my priority. Secondary for me has been the more standard science work. But in order to get my PhD, I need three or four publications. So I'm picking the key areas that I think are the most important to look at the hypothesis of are we undergoing an abrupt change right now. How is your, your thinking different and your process different when you're writing blog posts or putting together what you're going to say in, in one of your YouTube clips? How is that process different than if you're addressing other specialists? Well, the, the language is quite different. I see specialists as having a different language, a different jargon. One has to ask what the notion of an expert is. And the, that notion has changed significantly with the Internet because it used to be that the public recognized expertise. So you went to your medical doctor for your health, right? And they used a certain jargon, and often you'd have to ask them, well, what does that mean? They talked in a language that you didn't understand, which they use among themselves, right? And same thing with your lawyer or, you know, the scientist community. 
But now the notion of expert has changed significantly because the public does not recognize expertise the same way because now you'll go to your doctor, the doctor will say some things, and then you'll go on the internet and you'll get all of the latest science or information on you know a particular medical issue. And you will also come up with ideas of what you can do to better your position. So the feedback from the doctor is now only one component of it. We have information, you know, on any different issue at our fingertips. So now the difficulty is determining what is good information and what is bad information. The public doesn't have a lot of good filters to determine that. Those filters come from expertise and study in a particular area. So things are quite different. And there's also well-funded fraud. I mean, I don't know what to call it, but, you know, denial of climate change is basically fraudulent. It's not based on science. It's based on lots of money going to well-trained PR people who understand psychology and can talk about issues and sound very knowledgeable and very expert. Meanwhile, they're not. I mean, their mandate is to put out crap on climate change, like basically lie about climate change. The fossil fuel industry, I mean, it's well known. There's many books on it now. They're spending almost a billion dollars a year to try to discredit climate science and keep the status quo for fossil fuels and energy going. But they can't win. It doesn't matter how much money they put out there because extreme weather events around the world are so in your face. They're entering into people's lives. They're getting worse and worse as the sea ice declines, and they can't be denied. So people are starting to wake up and recognize and respond and so on. So would you say that one of the ways that you see your role is as trying to interject some of your expertise into these public conversations to provide the tools for people to make better distinctions between good information and bad information that's out there? Yes. When I post on climate change, people kind of use me as a climate change uh, filter. So, you know, if I post something about climate change, then many people in the public will weigh that. They'll know that it's not crap. They'll know that they can read the article. It means something. I also do a lot of blogs and try to connect one thing that's happening to another thing. Over time, you know, you kind of build up a trust, right? And people kind of trust what you say and they respect what you talk about. But, you know, it does take a lot of time. I mean, I'm in no rush to finish my PhD work, but I do have to finish at some point. So I'll probably switch my focus a bit to doing the science publications, just get what I need. But it's a lot of the education and outreach. That's the reason why I went back to school after a career in, uh, you know, physics and engineering and uh, the private sector. And what range of reactions do you get from colleagues, from other scientists, to your decision to engage so much with the broader public? They're changing their tune quickly, I think. Four years ago, most of them would be totally against it. But I think, like, I'm not studying, you know, particles in physics. I'm not studying some type of niche in biology. I'm studying something that 
affects my kids. It affects me. You know, it affects how much I pay for food. It affects the water. It affects everything, right? I see trees being toppled by storms or something. So what I'm studying, there's kind of a moral issue here. I don't see how any scientist can study climate change, see all the changes that are happening and not take a stand not call up media, say, look, this is happening. This is very bad. We need to slash fossil fuel emissions. It amazes me that scientists around the world that are looking at climate aren't standing up and screaming louder. But because of the changes that are happening in the system that are happening very, very fast, more and more scientists are starting to do this now. But, you know, also, if you work for the government and you're a scientist and you go and do this and you'll lose your job, right? If you're in the Canadian government, you know, you're a climate scientist and you're definitely muzzled. You don't have the ability to go out and talk to the public or the media without losing your job and therefore not being able to pay your mortgage. So you make a decision, right? This started in climate science and now it's spread to all aspects of science, at least in the Canadian government. I went into climate science to talk to the public. I just wanted to learn as much as I could about the system and get that information out any way I could think of, any way I could do it. And I'm seeing more and more people doing similar things. Like James Hansen is one of the best examples in climate science. I mean, he was heading NASA. You know, he was a bit of a thorn in their sides. He was talking about this stuff. He gave a hearing in 1988, I believe, to the politicians, and he's been a strong advocate of it. And, you know, he's gone on protests and been arrested in the last few years, right, protesting pipelines and things. The world doesn't get it yet. The world does not understand, has not been able to come to grips with the threat of climate change. That's changing, though. I mean, I think there'll be a tipping point in human behavior, you know, when there's a tipping point in human understanding. Western governments have done a tremendous job at making people fearful of terrorism. The idea is, you know, terrorism is this huge threat and, you know, you're more likely to be killed by a Coke machine falling on you in Canada or the U.S. or Europe than you are by a terrorist threat. So the risk was just thrown way out of proportion and the risk of climate change is enormous. It dwarfs any of these other risks. It's the issue that people need to be concerned about. And, uh, you know, that's starting to, uh, you know, extreme weather um, ramping up and uh, causing more and more economic losses, uh, you know, will will eventually reach a point where people are actually concerned about the risks and in fear of the correct things. And then, you know, we can respond and, and do something. You have been listening to my interview with climate scientist Paul Beckwith. We've been talking about issues of global warming and about his decision to step out of the usual role for scientists and to prioritize engagement with the broader public in his work. To find out more about what he does, and to access the many different online approaches he has used to popularize ideas related to climate change, search for his name using your favorite search engine. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Prince, 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 Phil.